Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Tracy K. Smith's latest book is both a memoir and an examination of race in America. And in looking back at generations of her family history, Smith has assembled, quote, a new terminology of American life. We'll talk with the former U.S. Poet Laureate about that new language for understanding how we relate to each other and how it might open up new ways of connecting across division and strife. Smith grew up in California and is the author of five books of poetry, one of which won the Pulitzer Prize. Her new memoir is called To Free the Captives. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I am searching for the sole family from whom I descend. That's how Pulitzer Prize-winning former U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith describes the impulse animating her latest book called To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul. It's a chronicle of her efforts to learn more about her father and her ancestors and what that process revealed to her about herself and our nation. Tracy K. Smith, professor of English and African-American studies at Harvard, joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you so much, Mina. It's a pleasure to have you, and I can't help but wonder why you were searching for your soul family. <laughs> what was going on for you when that began? Well, I think a few things um, contributed to that wish being so uh, clear in my mind. And one, which might be the quieter one, is both my parents are deceased, and I'm always listening for their guidance um, or sometimes just speaking out to them in the you know the mystery they, they belong to as a way yeah. of saying, I understand. <laughs> but 2020 was a heavy year, mm. a year in which so much of our fragility and also the rigidity of uh, some of our stances toward one another um, became so clear. And I think so many of us were pulled in many directions by the exhaustion of these warring uh, feelings, grief, um, rage, fear, uncertainty, um, and I felt the need for something larger than the human as we know it to help guide me. Yeah. Part of your family history that you engaged with deeply was your 
fathers and grandfathers' history. You talk about Gene and the significance of discovering your grandfather Gene's draft card. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it was so significant to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I spent some time um, looking through genealogy records. Many of us have started doing this because there are so many online resources that can help. And, um, you know, in the case of African-American history, oftentimes we come upon roadblocks um, um, after a few generations. And I was thinking, well, I want to do what I can to mine as much as I can. And I I know a lot about, you know, the the one or two um, or three generations before me, but I don't have a lot of artifacts, Um, a few photographs and stories that I was told. But I wanted to find evidence of my father's people in, you know, what we think of as the official record. And so finding um, census records that listed household members' names, ages, occupations, um, finding the draft card that indicated, you know, when my grandfather enlisted for World War I, where he was shipped off to, it it felt like... um, it felt a little bit more immersive, you know. Mm-hmm. I, it almost felt cinematic to see somebody's handwriting. I know, you know, there's my grandfather's signature there, but to see somebody's hand, handwriting entering this life into the public record. Um, and when my own family's, uh, you know, paper trail ran thin, I was able to turn toward other families um, whose, you know, photographs, wartime um narratives and artifacts have been offered up into wider history through donations to museums like the Smithsonian Museum of African-American History and Culture. And so it allowed me to imagine more fully um, a sense of the world that my grandfather was living in, the world he hoped or sought somehow to contribute to, and the reality that he faced um, after you know, after that war ended, when he returned to life in segregated Alabama, you linger on those artifacts. You you linger on the photos of your family members, but also other Black American soldiers, as you say, and you describe them in such detail, like how a hand is placed or a mouth is downturned. Why did you do that? Why mm. did you want us to really notice them? I think a lot of our regard for others in our day-to-day living in this country is something that we've been quietly initiated into, and it's facilitated a kind of overlooking, you know, like assumption-making that prevents us from asking questions or looking for tenderness or complexity in other people, especially across lines of difference. And so I wanted to linger at these images of black lives in their dailiness and also in moments of, you know, extraordinary circumstance and think about um, the heart, the hope, the spirit or soul. Think about feeling, you know, the the intention that people bring to actions or even the sense of um, vulnerability that we can read if we're we're willing to decipher it. Um, I feel like a big part of what this book is hoping to do together with others is to reconfigure the way that we see one another and the way that we might imagine um, the inner life of others. Yeah. Was there also something in what these men did, for example, enlisting, making a commitment to a nation that, as you write, a nation intent upon their diminishment and inured to their dying? Was there something in that, too, that was so powerful? Oh, absolutely. Especially thinking about the 
the terms of disregard that we as blacks in this country still live with. 2020 was a year when we were talking about that publicly. And it was a moment when many, um, many Americans who are not black maybe began to recognize that a little bit more actively. And there, it was a moment when there was a lot of debate about um, the value of these lives. And so it felt like um, an urgency. There's a point where you uncover a letter that your dad had written. This is a 1977 letter that your father, Floyd, writes uh, related to a move from Virginia to Travis Air Force Base. I'm wondering if you could read that letter to us. Sure. Um, and if you want, feel free to set it up if you wish. Sure. Um I inherited my dad's um, military records and a lot of other family papers um, when we sold the house my siblings and I grew up in, in Fairfield. And I learned a lot about my dad's experiences um, by looking at those records. In 1977, as you mentioned, my dad received a very official document from the U.S. government that said he was being um, charged for quote, overshipment of household goods, which meant that for his rank and grade in the military, he had shipped too many belongings um, when moving our family from one place to another. And it was a, you know, debt of $1,000. But my father also had these pages and pages of budgeting and drafts of a letter in which he was expressing um, in as measured and calm terms as, as possible, it seemed to me, that this was a, a burden, a financial burden that he, with a large family, would be unable to bear. It reminded me of circumstances affecting the lives of, um, you know, people that he descended from, mm. um, especially during the Depression. And so I felt almost a gathering of souls in a way. Um, it has even also alerted me to some of the own, you know, my own challenges. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to offer this up. He writes, I am a career airman. This debt of $1,030.63 arose from the shipment of household goods from Hampton, Virginia to Fairfield, California in October 1975. The shipment was considered overweight for my grade. I was assigned to Langley Air Force Base, Virginia, in 1972 after completing a Southeast Asia tour. Upon my arrival at Langley, no base housing was available, which required me to purchase a house on the local economy in Hampton, Virginia. In 1975, the 314th TAW, of which I was a member, deactivated, and I received a non-volunteer assignment to Travis Air Force Base, California. During the three years at Langley, I had accumulated the necessary furniture, appliances, and clothing to accommodate my family of seven. The assessed weight of my belongings outweighed the designated limit for my grade, which resulted in the indebtedness to the government. Upon my arrival at Travis Air Force Base, there was no base housing available due to renovation. This required me to purchase a house on the local economy at Fairfield, California. Although the equity received from the sale of my house in Hampton did not constitute a loss, it was not adequate for a down payment on the house purchased here in Fairfield. Therefore, a loan was secured from Travis Federal Credit Union to accommodate that requirement. I now have five children in school, of whom two are attending college. The attached Air Force Form 2451 
comprises a summary of my financial status. To be burdened with this additional responsibility would impose a grave hardship, which I am financially incapable of enduring. Therefore, I respectfully request remission and cancellation of this indebtedness. Ultimately, your father, as a commanding officer, attests to his character to validate this claim. We're coming up on a break, but what did this letter, Mm. what did it mean to you? What did it reveal to you? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It revealed to me the quiet diligence with which my parents provided for their five kids. And what I now understand, this mammoth effort that they must have, you know, taken on to allow us to imagine that we had everything that we needed and that we were no different from other people in our schools or communities who were living, you know, happily and in comfort. Um, In my vocabulary, that really registered a lot in terms of the difference between, you know, people we think of in this country as um, free and maybe another category to which I actually belonged, which was people who have been freed and therefore might be um, entitled to slightly less. I think my parents worked to blur that border for me. And by free, you mean people who descended from histories of of having power and, mm-hmm. and ownership and dominion? Absolutely, yeah. And then by freed, the opposite people who yeah. descended from from histories of being acted upon. Exactly. People who descend from histories of subjugation or violence, enslavement being one. Um, That border was one that I, you know, we live with. But to think about the ways that it informs our regard of one another, even now, is something that I wanted to do out loud, if you will, and together with others. I want to dig into that right after the break. We're talking with Tracy K. Smith. Her new book is To Free the Captives, a plea for the American soul. Listeners, have you ever sought out your family history as well? Why, when, in what moments did you feel that you needed needed it? What are your reactions to what you're hearing Professor Smith say? You can email forum at kqed.org, post on our social channels, or call us at 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with former U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith about her new memoir, To Free 
The Captives. It's about her endeavors to learn more about her ancestors, the, quote, soul family from which she descends, and what their stories can tell us about race and race relations in America and other institutions of power. Um, And uh, Tracy K. Smith is a poet, a librettist, professor of English and of African and African-American studies at Harvard. She served as Poet Laureate from 2017 to 2019, and you may know her previous books, which include Ordinary Light, Wade in Water, and Life on Mars, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 2012. What do you want to ask or tell Tracy K. Smith? Again, the number 866-733-6786, the email address forum at kqed.org. You can post on Instagram, in our digital community, on Discord. Our social channels are at KQED Forum. Just before the break, you were talking about the free and the freed, and you were mentioning the effect it has on the way we see one another. What is the impact of these categories, you think, and and in the way that we relate to each other as a result? Um, Well, I want to say that in some ways they are rooted in a mythology. So this, this notion of the free as people who appear to descend from these histories of power that we were talking about, the myth, is, the myth of that is that these are, it's an innate state. You know, these are people who have always been and will always be entitled to uh, this, this power, this, this freedom. It's an uncontested circumstance. And the other side of that myth is that the people who, you know, I'm describing as freed, people whose histories are, um, you know, like rooted in being disempowered or acted upon by the freed, um, that there is less that they um, should be entitled to, that their, their status is something that's conditional and that they should be grateful for it because who would want to go backward? Um, I think these terms... Um, distract us from the fact that a value system or a hierarchy um, like this is diminishing to everyone. Um, The people who imagine themselves to have this kind of authority quietly, unconsciously, but actively are often working, regarding others, or thinking in a way that has um, an investment in defending this freedom from encroachment. Um, Maybe privilege is another word for the freedom that I'm talking about. And the distraction that the freed are saddled to is the notion that maybe if we leverage something a little bit more effectively, we can ascend in this country. We can rise to a status where freedom is something that we can feel through and through. I don't think much will change unless we decide that the work we're willing to do is different from this and that it it becomes something that's collaborative and rooted in creating another set of goals or possibilities um, that we can build together. Could you talk about your experience at Princeton, when you were at Princeton, when you tried to access the archive there Mm -hmm. with some guests from Emory? Yeah, and I'll preface this by saying, uh, since this book has come out, I've spoken to so many black academics (laughs) from institutions far and wide, um, not even solely within the United States, who have experienced a similar feeling, um, a similar situation. So the anecdote um, is I was hosting some guests from another university, and I brought them, you know, they wanted to visit the Rare Books and Manuscripts Library. So on a spontaneous visit, we arrived, and the clerk said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm a faculty member. I have these guests. Is there any way we can look in at some of the materials? They they work with rare um, manuscripts at their own institution. And the answer was no. 
Now, there's a way to look at that and say, okay, there's a protocol. Um, but there's another way of describing the feeling of such an encounter, which is um, the feeling of having been profiled, <laughs> the feeling of having um, arrived in a way that's unexpected. And when all the circumstances are considered, doubt is what prevails. I'm not really calling out Princeton. I'm calling out this manner of assessing and regarding um, one another that I think is um, rooted in these notions of power. And it's endemic to America and American institutions. But of course, it, it exists elsewhere as well. Um, so that was, a, that was a, a moment when I realized I belong here but not always. Or I belong here, and there are moments when that belonging might have to be authorized um, in ways that I, I hadn't hadn't wished to acknowledge. Yes. And then you talk about <clears throat> for the freed. So to be free creates this idea that you can deprive people of access, that you can play this kind of role in determining who is authorized to enter, for example, right? A particular space where mm -hmm. maybe you can gain deeper understanding or power from being there. On the other side, you mentioned ascending, how the freed ascend and how they may try to leverage things in a way that actually may not be great either. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Um, obsessed as we are in this country with our social hierarchies, <laughs> um, you know, power is um, indexed to this notion of freedom, permission, privilege, access, acquisition, perhaps even. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about the American dream, I think we're also talking about climbing up that that ladder or that hierarchy. Um, I wanted to talk about this in a way that was honest in this book. And so the framework that I chose was to write a little bit about my first marriage um, because that was a relationship that straddled a national border. I'm American. I was married to someone from Mexico for several years. And in his country... I had U.S. dollars. <laughs> I had a U.S. passport. I had a certain kind of um, power or access um, that went a long way there. In my country, he was sorted into the category of Mexican, of immigrant, um, and all of the you know prejudices in America that come with that sort of shrouded him, and it was vexing to him. Um, nevertheless, I was unconscious of, but now, you know, willing to acknowledge there were ways that his standing as someone who was not white in this country gave him a little bit more leverage. And so I can imagine him saying, well, my wife has has this kind of status, but I have another because I'm not black like she is here in this place. Um, I wanted to think about and interrogate that because it it revealed that Without wanting to dismiss the people, even the people that we love, we are there's a part of our mind or our, our imagination that is geared so much toward um, ascent, toward you know getting more, doing better, success, um, that we're willing to sort of 
measure ourselves up against them and see if if there are ways that we can inch up ever higher. Mm. Um, And that really startled me. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, all of these circumstances that I'm, you know, describing in this book, many of them are things that I really disagree with, even though I, too, am implicated within them. Hmm. And what does it mean to live in a society where we, we might become willing to say, I disagree with the things that I find myself doing or choosing. I disagree with the... Um, quick judgments I've been trained to make, um, even as I find myself making them. Let me go to some calls and ask listeners again, if you'd like to share, if you ever sought out your family history and why and when and what that experience was like, you can. I'm also curious if what Professor Smith is saying about the distinction between free and freed resonates with you, makes sense to you, if you consider yourself free or freed? And if so, how do you see you sort of playing out that role in America? Let me go to caller Dominique in Oakland. Dominique, you're on. Hi, I really relate to so much of what you're discussing here. I've actually um, tried to research my indigenous Mexican ancestry on my mother's side and have found it quite difficult and have felt very thwarted, um, mainly because the way we think of indigeneity as Americans is, is very different because we've had systemic racism that was very much interested in treaties and nations and blood quanta in a way, and I hate to hesitate, I really hesitate to call it a silver lining, but at least this way where our flavor of racism was interested in tracking those things. And it hasn't really been that way in Mexico. Um, when I've looked at the historic records to try and find out where my ancestors come from, it only says Indio, which is the word for indigenous. Um, The region that my family is from was quite diverse. It was from um, a group of people who were mixed among themselves. There was no predominant indigenous ethnic group. And what makes me somewhat sad is this idea that the only thing for me to turn to is 23andMe or DNA ancestry testing, which I have my own qualms with because I know that that is not really a science. I actually have a lot of problems ethically with the way they try to recreate racial and ethnic groups based on present populations that may not have been there 100, 200, or 300 years ago. Mm. Um, And I have to sit with this notion, this pain of wanting to know. Mm. Oh, Dominique. And Thank, yeah. sorry, and the, the sadness of wanting the answers, but of always knowing that whatever snapshot I choose to call my ancestry would always be somewhat of an artistic interpretation. Mm-hmm. Tracy, did you encounter this feeling that Dominique is describing to some extent as well, just because, as you say, it's very hard to get records, right? It's- yeah, the terms, of course, are different for me. Um, but Dominique, I really do feel this sense of of conflict that you're describing um, and the sense of how wrong it feels that so much of what we know is living history has been nullified or erased or misidentified. Um, One of the things that um, I sought or allowed myself to do in thinking backward toward the lives that I descend from was to imagine 
and to say, you know, I know that the archive doesn't really do a lot to quantify something like the presence of love, but I know that the evidence of of community and kinship and networks that help one another during moments of difficulty in life, I know it's love that makes that possible. And to claim that as a, a vocabulary really... It was a form of consolation, but it also emboldened me to use other forms of knowledge that I believe are valid. And, you know, I love the the scholar, Saidiya Hartman, who has, you know, demonstrated through her own critical fabulations that we can imagine toward the archive and bring a fuller sense of, you know, the, the internal and psychic and emotional and... and um, all of those other vocabularies into our understanding of these lives, even if we don't have the paper trail. Yeah. Um, and so I hope that um, you don't discount this other way of intuiting um, that that you have access to. Well, let me thank Dominique for the call. And let me go to Tina in San Francisco next. Tina, you're on. Hi, thanks. And um, Professor Smith, I'm a huge fan of your writing and how to brief stint at, at Princeton. Um, I'm a first in heritage. I teach German studies. Um, and I did a summer seminar at Cornell University that was focused on the Holocaust. And we were a mixed group of people of different heritages, um, some of German Jewish heritage, some German Gentile like myself. And one of the people who's German Gentile said, have all of you who are German Gentile looked at your family history and looked it up and looked up like what your grandparents, who would have been the ones who were alive and adults during the Nazi era, what they were doing during that time period. And I, I, I hadn't for my grandfather and I looked up what his company was doing and she cautioned us a lot of the company's websites would have blank pages between 33 and 45 and his dead. And I mean, I think about this. I always say to my students, it's apples and oranges comparing the traumatic histories of one demographic with the traumatic histories of another demographic for all sorts of reasons that are obvious or maybe not. (laughs) But I think, you know, the point for me in this, in thinking about this and bringing it up here is I always tell my students that our histories are so connected. And when you were speaking previously in response to Nina Kim's question about freedom, being free, being freed, Um, these moves to, I think about this with regard to black studies in the U.S., with regard to indigenous studies, these moves to innocence on the part of Mm -hmm. white peoples, you know, which I am, um, is is what I'm bringing this up for to challenge that. Yeah, Yeah. Tina, thank you. I think that's really just so powerful to imagine being in a room and being asked to claim that kind of interconnection that you're talking about. Um, it's frightening, but I think it's also the only solution that we have to understand what what we will do, what we might willingly do with the fact that no one's fate is disengaged from another's. Um, and that's, we have so many vocabularies for denying that. Time is one of them. Oh, I wasn't there. That was a long time ago. I didn't make that happen. And yet, if we if we find the vantage point, and there are many in every life, we, un- we, can, we can kind of claim the fact that I too am implicated in these acts that occurred before I was born without my consent. And what does that mean I can be invested in repairing? Do you want to talk about that encounter with the woman in Kentucky? Mm. 
Oh, I, I this one of my favorite stories from my time as poet laureate. I visited um, a town called Glasgow, Kentucky, and um, I read it was a, a majority white town, a small community, and I read a number of my own poems at an event and some poems by other poets. And my own poems were um, taken from the archive. I was um, thinking about the experience of African-American soldiers in the Civil War and what they described their willingness to serve as being rooted in. And after that reading, a white woman came up to me and she said, oh my gosh, that poem was really powerful and it reminded me of, you know, my grandmother and the history that she, you know, was close to, the stories she had inherited. I'm going to go home and I want to get something for you. Can you wait? And so I waited. And an hour or more later, the woman came back and she had a very different bearing. She looked stricken, worried, but nevertheless, she approached me and she said, okay, I wanted to go home and get you this recording of my grandmother telling stories and singing songs from her childhood. And my siblings and I loved her so much, we didn't want to lose this trace of her life. And so we recorded her before she passed. And she looked at me and she said, but I need you to know my grandmother would never wanted to have hurt you. And suddenly I said, oh, all right, of course. These old Kentucky songs are going to be full of moments or gestures or words that would undermine um, my own sense of, of the, my, the fullness of my humanity. And there was a side of me that could have shut down at that moment. But I thought about it and I said, this woman felt accountable to a stranger such that even after she got home and thought things through and realized what was in this recording, maybe she even listened to it, she wanted to turn around and go back and hand it to this woman. Um, and I thought, wow, I wonder if one way of thinking about what happened for her was to imagine that these other lives emboldened her to hear a different message in her grandmother's story. And maybe that message was, yes, we love each other, but maybe it's time to choose to claim and celebrate different things about the history that we come from. And that felt really hopeful to me. Tracy K. Smith is offering a new way for us to relate to, it, to each other. And she writes about it in her new book, To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul. We'll have more with her and with you. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The New York Times called Tracy K. Smith's new memoir to free the captives a travelogue of the soul, as it's about her efforts to learn more about her ancestors, the, quote, soul family from which she descends, and what their stories can tell us about race relations in America and so many other things about America. Tracy K. Smith is former U.S. Poet Laureate and a Pulitzer Prize winner for her book of poetry. She's written five of them. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. What would you like to ask or tell Tracy K. Smith? Have you sought out your family history and have an experience that you feel like relates to what Smith is describing, what's your reaction to the distinction that Tracy K. Smith is drawing between free and freed? And how do you consider yourself? And what does that mean in terms of your next steps? The email address forum at kqed.org, our social channels at KQED Forum, our phone number 866-733-6786, I'm Wanting to just dig a little bit deeper into this notion of how, or more than a notion, really, how we are trapped, whether we are free or freed. There's this moment in your book where you write about your husband now, your white husband, cradling your two sons. And you write, for years I have watched him born free cradle his children's freedom, different from what has been allotted to him. There is nothing he hasn't agreed to take from himself and give to them, if the world will let him. What stops the free (laughs) Mm -hmm. or the world from letting someone who is free act differently than the sort of prescribed ways that someone in that position would behave? Mm Mm-hmm. It's a really funny dynamic when you think about it. Um, I think that there are fears that changing changing our notions of what others are worthy of activates for people. Um, and maybe some of that anxiety comes from how slow it is for institutions who are also you know rooted in some ways. Um, in notions of worth, um, who, who's, who it's safe to risk, take a risk on, who it's safe to welcome mm-hmm. into certain spaces. Um, maybe the slow rate at which institutions are willing to change um, emboldens this fear, if that makes sense. Um, think about how long it took for legislation to change that we now think of as just you know common sense like oh anti-miscegenation laws in this country for example um there was an institutional barrier to love for a long time in this country Mm. um and so i guess i wanted to acknowledge that um if we really want to love each other properly we have to um be willing to look beyond what um structures, customs, and um, patterns of of behavioral, you know, norms um, authorize. Hmm. Could you read for us a moment in the book when you are asked to withdraw your sons, your young sons from preschool? Sure. Yeah, and I have again, to... feel free to say anything about this if you'd like. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have two children um, whom I now know 
are on the autism spectrum. And um, when they were younger than, um, you know, than that diagnosis, um, their first experience of school was um, abruptly <laughs> truncated. Um, so I'll just read uh, that moment, and, and it touches on some of the deep feelings that um, the way that decision was conveyed to me, um, the deep feelings that that activated. Yeah. And maybe it's also a way of saying how entangled all of these um, vocabularies of being, existence, and belonging are in every life. And maybe that's one reason why it's so difficult to say one life or one facet of a single life is remote from and independent of another. My husband and I are pressured to withdraw our young sons from a private nursery school because of their classroom behavior. Behavior that will soon, but not yet, not in the moment I'm remembering, lead us into the community with other families living with autism. Soon, but not yet, not in the time I'm remembering, this setback will be revealed as a blessing. But for now, in the now I'm remembering, I feel hurt. Because my sons are observed for two short days and rejected as problematic, as unteachable, because the situation has been handled with what feels like brusque disregard, because the situation has called their worth into question, and my only form of contestation is to love my sons and press on. I struggle to understand how much of the director's dismissal of their potential has to do with race. The pain I feel on the morning of this decision activates the reserve of pain amassed over the course of my whole life any time I am preemptively classified, any time I am judged as threatening or unworthy of bother because of my race. Some small part of the concern I ought rightfully to reserve for my sons is displaced by the anger and hurt hovering around my own untended wounds. That night, after work, I muddle an orange peel with sugar and add ice, bourbon, a splash of soda. A lone sour cherry is lifted from its syrup. The fragrant, bitter warmth restores the boundaries, barring any single anger, grief, or regret from aligning forces with any other. I was so struck by that passage, um, Professor Smith, because I expected you to sort of go outward and talk about the systems of power that were operating there that stopped your sons from getting a shot at, at mm -hmm. staying at this preschool and so on. But you turn inward to you making a drink. Mm. Why did you do that? Hmm. Well, you know, in, in the chronology of the book, some of that structural thinking, which I locate in history, has taken place. Um, and some of the thinking through even our own, you know, participation in, in these forms of, you know, worth judging, judging others as worthy or unworthy um, has happened. But in this chapter, I wanted to think about civic sobriety. And what I, what I take that to be is our willingness to look plainly and clearly at what we are accountable for and to act in accordance with the sense of clear-eyed accountability for what has or has not been done. 
And one way of getting to that was to think about my own sobriety. Um, Yes, in many cases, it was tripped off by these other, you know, feelings, these other anxieties. Um, But um, I wanted to take that to a place where a reader might also be willing to, to look inward at the quiet workings in a life, in a mind, in a heart, in the face of all the challenges that we live with in this country, many of which have to do with difference, with how we've been taught to assess racial difference, um, and what threat or opportunity it it suggests. Um, So what role did, did alcohol play for you? Alcohol, I think it was a way of rinsing myself free of the reality of difficulty, of the reality as a, as a parent of young children, of realizing I was no longer responsible only for myself. The reality of thinking, if that's true, and if my fears as a parent are grounded in fact, um, fears, you know, in terms of raising black kids in a country that looks at black kids differently than it does white kids. Um, I don't even know how to finish that sentence. You no, know, I think you, you have answered the question. I, I think the rinsing is so interesting. There was one other, I guess, sort of parable that I wanted you to read, which is... Um, well, maybe you should just read it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. People will understand. But the connection of, you know, America <laughs> mm-hmm. and how America responds to issues to sobriety, I think, is really powerful. So anyway, if, yeah. if you wouldn't mind reading that parable. Absolutely. And I lo- I'm glad you're calling it a parable because it's a story that I've kind of constructed so we can imagine ourselves in the bodies of people making choices rooted in knowledge of behavior and also in denial of that behavior. Um, and we're, we might find ourselves in those circumstances in our private lives, but I think that when we step back and think about the ways that we participate in a nation that is constantly making decisions and, and oftentimes denials of accountability, we're always in, engaged in that kind of a, a thought process. One night, two friends might sit drinking together until things haze over and one friend says a thing or the other friend does a thing or both together make a choice they know in their rightful minds they ought not to. Harm ensues. Someone is scorned or handled or stolen from and the one friend there beside the other, consenting in silence, is caught somehow, too, in the shame of that harm. Both go home. Each sleeps it off, then wakes to a vague knowing, acknowledged the next day with a shrug, a choking up the pair covers with hiccups of laughter. It is a pact. It binds them to one another. It is heavy. Together, they slump to support it. If one puts it down, the weight of it will fall to the other, so they shoulder it, they soldier on. Over time, between them, there are many more such nights. Eventually, the whole fabric of their friendship grows knotted with compromise. 
Do you see it? Can you make it out? The borders and treaties, the acts and pacts, the decisions, deflections, and denials, the growing body of history, the integrity of a nation, and how essential sobriety ought to be to such an enterprise? Tracy K. Smith reading from her new book, To Free the Captives, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Those questions you ask at the end of that passage sort of reveal, right, what the metaphor is here, but I don't know if there's anything else you wanted (laughs) to say. Well, um, I think about what we can be convinced that we benefit from that has great cost. Um, You know, there are a lot of ways of dense distancing ourselves from proof of of such costs. But when we're courageous, we can can find them, and they're not very far from us all the time. And um, again, I'm trying to think of how we in this country can reconfigure what it feels like to be an American in a world, in a nation that's beautifully diverse. And um, I guess I'm asking us to try and do this through the imagination first. Because logic, we, we have so many ways of sort of like navigating around these knots in logic. And so I'm wondering if thinking a little bit more vulnerably about the imagination we inherit in this country, which was forged as the country was being founded. And so we know it's forged in violence, it's forged in theft or what, you know, we might more, you know, comfortably call appropriation, um, colonization. Um, Those terms dwell even now closer to the surface in our minds than we would wish to believe. Um, But if we can acknowledge that, maybe we can recircuit, <laughs> reroute those circuits together. Um, and I think doing so would have great implication, yes, on the collective, but also on the weight of the everyday and the private that we live with as well. Let me go to caller Tom in Kensington. Tom, you're on. Hi. I wanted to uh, congratulate Tracy immensely on all her successes in this one uh, in particular. Uh, I was her high school English teacher in Fairfield, and um, I have lots that I would like to talk to her about and ask her, but I will limit it to one thing, and that's an anecdote. Uh, when Tracy was in high school, uh, she was getting an award, and I met her parents, and I'd had all her siblings in class as well, and I went up to her mother and I said, uh, could you please, I was a new new parent at that time, could you please tell me what the, success, what the secret of your success as a parent was to have five such as outstanding kids, Tracy being, of course, uh, one of them. And uh, the, her mother looked at me and said, well, we did nothing, but we supported our kids and their interests, and they're very diverse. Uh, but they, she supported them. Later, in talking with Tracy, I found there was another element. And in reading um, Ordinary Light, I found that there was another element that was very, very important in her upbringing, which was a very traditional religious background. And I asked Tracy uh, what her 
feelings were about that at this point in her life. And we talked a bit about it. And in, in To Free the Captives, she talks more about it. And I wonder if Tracy could now mm. maybe mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about <laughs> the spiritual aspect okay. uh, Thanks. In, Thank you, Tom. in her book. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Tom, for calling in and with that story. I think about that story a lot because I can't ask my parents that same question. So the fact that I've heard you tell that story makes me think, okay, support the children as they are. Support their <laughs> interests as they exist. Um, yeah, well, you, you'll find in this book that there is a vocabulary that, that is familiar to religion, right? The soul being one term, mm-hmm. um, faith, um, belief, even this notion that I'm becoming more and more comfortable with, which is communing across the mortal divide, realizing or, or claiming the notion that these lives, these souls are not gone, and perhaps they too can work alongside us in this massive undertaking that, that is before us. Um, I've grown through many stages of my relationship to, um, to God, to faith, to religion, um, one one facet of it um, as a young child was just belief and love that there was this figure as important as God who cared about me. And that was a great form of um, support. I know my mother and father were taught that same lesson in, uh, you know, the Jim Crow South by people who believed in God and by people who understood that the nation did not believe in them in the same way and was not looking out for their safety and their survival and flourishing. And so a vocabulary of faith um, bolstered that um, and it made up for what was, you know, codified into law um, to sort of pull those those assurances away from black people in this country. Um, but there's more, you know, I think that faith could simply be belief that we can do more, do better, and that one another um, can become a massive support network when we train our minds and spirits on something that we that we believe is important. Well, Tracy, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on Forum. Oh, thank you. I mean, I really enjoyed our conversation. Tracy K. Smith's new book is To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul. Susie Britton produced today's segment. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your reflections and experiences. And you've been listening to Forum. Have a great weekend. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.